serve us in place of her sister. We're appreciative of your gifts on our behalf. Last week, we finished our series in Ecclesiastes, and I know it's Mother's Day, and certainly a happy Mother's Day, uh, but we here, if you're not familiar at North Hills, we do not do a particular Mother's Day sermon or Father's Day sermon or Valentine's Day sermon. Uh, we us- generally do series through God's Word. Uh, we're sort of in an in-between time, uh, so we're going to preach through some psalms over the next several weeks. Jacob and I will be preaching through some psalms, and we're going to start with Psalm 12. And you say, well, why Psalm 12? Well, it just so happens that the last time I did this preaching through some psalms, I ended in Psalm 11. That was back in 2020. So, Psalm 12. Here we are. So, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or in the bulletin, page 6, or Pew Bible, page 452, I'm going to read Psalm 12 to us. To the choir master, according to the Shimonith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We do indeed need you every hour. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we think about it or not, it's true. But we also thank you that you provide for us, that you are with us by your spirit that indwells in the lives of those who follow you and know you. And you've given us your word. And Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that we have with your word. Uh, We are blessed beyond measure with translations, being able to read it in our own language, being able to pull it up on an app. Lord, it's here and you are with us and we thank you for that. So we pray you'd use your word this morning on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are so many ways that our words can go wrong. So many ways. Uh, Think about how technology simply reveals that. Uh, Have you ever seen, maybe you've made the mistake yourself, someone replying all in an email when they really just mean to reply to one person and maybe they're complaining about the boss and they've replied to all, including the boss, that's a problem. Have you ever texted the wrong person? Yeah, it happens. And you just hope, okay, that was innocuous and no big deal. Or there's the British doctors group that sent to about 8,000 of their patients, it's a large group, 
two days before Christmas this past year that they were dying of aggressive lung cancer. Can you imagine getting that text two days before Christmas? And included with that text, it asked patients to fill out a form that allowed people with terminal illnesses to claim benefits. So, of course, many got that. Some were awaiting news results. I'm not sure if it would be appropriate for it to be sent by text, but that's another story. They, a couple hours later, said, Sincere apologies for the previous text message sent. Our message to you should have read, We wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Those are very different messages. Our words can go awry in so many different ways. And technology simply reveals not just the fact that we speak in error, but that we also can use our words in troubling ways. Yes, mistakes happen, but also sometimes we speak out of a heart of anger or a heart of hurt, a heart of greed or lust or whatever it may be. And technology just reveals that. It doesn't create the heart. It shows it. And the same is true of our very words themselves. It reveals our hearts. And it reveals where we live. So my theme this morning is this, that our words reflect our spiritual condition and climate. That is the culture that we live in. And we're talking about three things, the overflow of the heart, the words of eternal life, and let the words of my mouth. Those will be my three points. But the overflow of the heart is where we'll start. And this is a psalm of lament. Now, about 40% of the psalms, depending on how you categorize them, are psalms of lament. So that's quite a bit. It's not quite half, but that's a large portion. Now, there's various reasons for the lament, and we'll see that next week as well. Some of them are corporate and some are individual. This is a corporate lament or a communal lament. Next week, Psalm 13 is an individual lament. ESV Study Bible says this is a community lament suited to occasions when the people of God are dominated by liars in positions of authority. It's not clear whether these liars are unfaithful Israelites or Gentile oppressors. The psalm works for either situation. Again, next week, uh, Psalm 13 is an individual lament. But both the communal and the individual are useful for the follower of Christ in the community of Israel faith and one of the best books i've read in the last couple years is uh, mark brogup's book uh, dark clouds and deep mercy and he says this lament can be defined as a loud cry a howl or a passionate expression of grief however in the bible lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness it is more than walking through the stages of grief Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. I think it's helpful to hear again. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust, in particular trust in God. So what is the cause of David's pain in this psalm? The first thing that you hear in verse 1 is that he feels, whether he is or not, he feels alone. It looks like. The godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished, and now he's simply surrounded by those who use their words in an evil fashion. 
And we don't know the particular occasion in which David writes this. Some of the Psalms we do, we have that, what I call verse zero. It's that section above what your Bibles give as a, as a heading. It's actually a part of the scripture. So the, to the choir master, according to the Shemineth, the Psalm of David. Sometimes we'll get little notes about what occasion a particular psalm. Psalm 51 is a good example of that. But this one doesn't give this. So we can imagine there were times when David was on the run from Saul that he felt oppressed and alone. And people using words against him. There were times when his own son, Absalom, was against him that he may have felt that way. We don't need to locate the specific circumstance. The Psalms speak to the common experience of the followers of God in a fallen, sin-saturated world. So David feels alone, so he's crying out to God. That's the first part of his pain. The second part is that there are a variety of sinful words that have been wielded in an attempt to manipulate the circumstances in which he finds himself. There's a variety of ways that our words break the Lord's commands, that do damage to relationships, that tear at the fabric of community. So the first thing that we hear, verse 2, everyone utters lies. And not just lies, and, and I think we understand generally, that's not a hard one to understand, that that is damaging. But notice that it's everyone utters lies to his neighbors so now we're coming into a closer relationship and if you're lying to your neighbors then what does that create it creates a shaky foundation for community when you do not know who or what you can trust and of course we're commanded to what love our neighbor not lie to them but that's what david sees he sees these lies he also sees flattering lips and those speaking with a double heart uh, the Hebrew is more literally with a lip of smoothness and with a heart and a heart they speak. Uh, it's this deceptive flattery it's been described as. It's repeated also, that flattering lips is repeated in verse 3. And Henry Ward Beecher described flattery this way. It's praise insincerely given for an interested purpose and not a good one. That's what flattery is. So there's the lies, there's the flattering lips and the double heart, and then there's also the great boasts. You know, you, you may have this person in your workplace, the person who's always talking a big game, either big about what they did over the weekend or what they're going to accomplish or the things that they've done in the past. Maybe you've been that person who is always speaking about yourself, boasting. But it's not just a boast in that sense. It also goes beyond that. It's a boast that reveals trust solely in one's self. That's the message behind these boasts. Look at verse 4. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? We're lords of our own domains. Don't you see it? And then there's an implication of verse 5. The poor are plundered because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. There's an implication, I think, that these words are used 
to damage the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, whether it's because of lies, whether it's because of boasts, whether it's because of flattery, whatever it may be. It speaks of the climate in which David is in and the society that's impacted by the sin of our lips. I mean, think about our own culture. And the most vulnerable in our society society are the ones that are most often impacted by lies, flattery, and boasts of who? Politicians, oftentimes. Not solely, but we see that around us. And that's a, a problem. The words reveal where we are, where an individual might be, and where we might be as a culture. There's a tragic situation that happened to a wife and mother of three lost her husband. He died unexpectedly, and she was looking for children's book that would help her children deal with their grief, and she couldn't really find what she wanted, so she wrote it and published it, and it's titled, Are You With Me?, and it contains children who are asking, you know, is my dad still with me in these circumstances? And it goes through these different experiences. But there's one problem. The problem is that she's now been arrested for poisoning her husband. And there's a good bit of evidence. I know, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but there's certainly a lot of evidence against her. So it appears at the very least that she was using these words to cover up her crime, her sin. That's crazy. But then again, words are often used to cover up evil, aren't they? Sometimes the sin is great and sometimes it's small, but it's all an offense to the Lord and it does damage to the community. So David is right to pray and lament. And we are right to do the same when we see such things. But here's a question to consider. What does our speech reveal about the condition of our hearts or about our spiritual condition or about the spiritual climate in which we live? Here's the question that Jesus uh, or a statement that Jesus made in Luke 6.45. The good person out of the abundance of the good treasure of his heart's heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you broaden that out, not just about the individual, what does our speech reveal? But the community, what does the way that our culture communicates reveal about the condition of our heart as a culture, as society? I don't know about you, but I think we have a problem. But that's not all that can be learned from this psalm. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, but the Lord brings us the words of eternal life. Now, Jesus would often teach hard things. Things that would reveal how lost people actually were. And in John chapter 6, Jesus does some miracles. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He teaches about himself as being the bread of life. But not everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. Not everybody could receive what he had to say. And they said in verse 60 of chapter 6, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, 
said to them, do you take offense at this? And he goes on and continues to teach them. And then we read a little bit further down after this teaching. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, Mr. Big Mouth. You know, sometimes he gets it right. And he did. He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lydia and I both love that passage. Where else shall we go? Where shall we turn to? Where shall we flee? You have the words of eternal life. And David knew that the Lord had those words too. And as he directs his prayer to the Lord, to Yahweh, the one who has those words of eternal life, he knows David is the, uh, that the Lord, David knows that the Lord is the Lord of salvation and of judgment. So notice what he prays in verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. It's a request. He's coming to the Lord. Now, it is up to the Lord to act according to his will. But David makes this prayer. He makes this request. And if you recognize evil in the world, then you too might pray in a similar fashion. Lord, do what is right. And the Lord does act on our behalf. And on behalf of those who give him praise, he saves those who worship him and follow him, not because we do that, but because he has made us his own. The Lord has arisen on our behalf, like those Israelites in, in Exodus who were oppressed by the Egyptian, crying out, Lord, save us. When we cry out to the Lord to save us from our sin, from the dominion of the evil one, when we groan for God, when we cry out for Him, then we receive those words of eternal life. Even if we still have the experience of brokenness and sin in this world. But here's an exercise that you can do. I started to do it this week, but you could do it on your own. Compare and contrast the words that we speak with the words that the Lord speaks or Jesus speaks. Uh, you could do a column. This is what I started to do in my notebook. On the left, I put the characteristics of God's word and the characteristics of my words or man's words. And I began to compare and contrast them. See, when God speaks, his will is always accomplished. When he, he says, let there be light, there's light. When I say, let there be light, I hope someone's standing right there to flip the switch, right? I, I, I can't do that on my own. I can't make electricity. I Hopefully the bill's paid, right? whether it's from creation to our salvation, when Jesus says it is finished, the Lord accomplishes what he wills and what he speaks. My words pale in comparison. And I speak for a living, at least in part. So make a chart. God's words are always effective, always powerful. Mine, I only hope, are so. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie. Man lies. I lie. You lie. 
God never lies. He doesn't need to. God's word reveals his sovereignty. Mine merely reveal pitiful attempts at self-rule. Who is master over us? And you could continue to go on and compare and contrast. And you'll see such an utter and complete difference. But thankfully, God's words are words of eternal life that we might know his life. And that our words might be different as a result. His words reveal his character. And if he doesn't speak for us through Christ, then we are lost. But he has done that. John 1.14 And the word became flesh. Jesus, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth. That's why Jesus has the words of eternal life. So we run to him. Just as David runs to the Lord in this psalm. We cry out to God. To address the speech of this world. But also to address our speech. And our need. And in return. We hear his words of grace and mercy to us. An article written by Pierce Taylor Hibbs. He writes. Divine syllables stand beneath every part of reality. We live in an uttered place, an uttered place, and worship an uttering God. In Scripture, we have special speech, redeeming speech, saving speech. In Scripture, we encounter not just God's word, but God's word to us. It's the balm and bandage for our souls. It's the constant call to communion. It's the lighthouse of the Christian life. It never goes out, and it always draws us in. And so if our words reflect our spiritual climate and condition, then those who have received the eternal word of Christ should want more and more to be shaped by those words, not the words of our world. And so I want to give you some practical things to think about as we think about the words of our mouths. I talk a lot. You know that. It's a disposition. It's also a part of my job. And I'm especially mindful of my words when I get up here in this pulpit to preach. And I'd say Jacob does the same when he preaches. And sometimes I pray the last verse of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's a good prayer for a preacher to pray. It's also a good word for everyone else to pray. And so five R's I want to give you if you're walking with the Lord today about our speech. First of all, rejoice in the Lord who speaks for us and over us. Rejoice that he speaks to us through Christ and for us through Christ. Rejoice that he saw that we were plundered by our sin and groaning in our need. And he sent Jesus. As you come to worship, rejoice in our, through our song. Rejoice through our confession and assurance. Rejoice in our prayers. Rejoice as you listen. Rejoice that the Lord is for us and delights in us and sings over us. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
So the first R is to rejoice. The second R is to repent. Repent of your own speech that violates God's command. Not just generally. I know it's easy when you come to church to to agree, I'm a sinner. Right? Because that's the thing you're supposed to do. And that's good. But we also need to repent specifically of the ways that we misuse our words. Whether it's lying, whether it's boasting, whether it's flattering, whether it's hurting or harming someone with our words, we need to repent of that. And let's evaluate our speech in light of the good news of Jesus. And when we can see that we've fallen short, we've used sinful speech for our own sinful ends, then let's repent and turn towards our Savior. Now, the psalm is looking out to the culture, but that's not from a place of self-righteousness or hypocrisy, but from uh, being a part of the covenant people of God, which requires that we repent of our sin. The third R, and this is kind of a two for one, receive and return again and again the ministry of our advocate That is Jesus. We will sin in word, thought, and deed daily, the confession says, or the catechism. And that means that we're going to need an advocate. And that is Jesus standing for us before the Father. Satan will lie to you and tell you that God is not good. That your sin is more than God will forgive. Or that you are forever stained by that sin. Pay no heed to those lies. Remember this truth, my little children, John writes in 1 John 2, 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is interceding, Hebrews tells us, even now for us before the Father. And so we have a word that we can trust. And that's David's ultimate confidence and hope. Though he laments what he sees and hears around him, he's trusting in the Lord. Look at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. So rejoice, repent, receive and return to your advocate, the ministry of it. Fourthly, reject the speech patterns of this culture. Now, this is not the starting place, though the psalm starts there, but not from a vacuum. But what do you see in terms of speech in the world? It's not necessarily that of righteousness. Instead, let's be truth tellers. Let's be those who are discerning about what we repeat. Simply because we hear something that aligns with something we already think does not make it true necessarily. Let's be discerning about what we repeat. Let's be kind and forgiving even when we have been maligned or someone disagrees with us or we disagree with them. Let's persuade for the sake of truth, not simply to win an argument. Let's remain calm, even though the speech patterns of the culture are simply to drown out other views. We don't have to yell to make our points. We don't have to curse at others to make our points. We don't have to be unkind. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So reject 
the way the world operates and w- operate as the Lord would call, call us. Your fifth R and final R is to remember the already but not yet. What that means is we are saved now, but we are not yet in eternity. And so we're going to struggle and we're going to have occasion to lament what we see in ourselves, what we see in our church, what we see in our culture, what we see in this world. The faithful may seem few or alone at times. And unlike most Psalms, Psalm 12 does not end on a high note. It actually ends with a note of reality. On every side, verse 8 says, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Or put another way, it, it will not always be easy to follow the Lord. And it will lead us to a place of lament at times. These words that we hear, even the words we use, will reflect things that we wish it did not reflect. So we remember this and we lament that reality. But we also remember that God has promised us so much more and he has already arisen on our behalf. He will guard us. I will say, and I'll conclude conclude with this, that my cultural references are dated. And so I go back to the Shawshank Redemption, which is uh, almost 30 years old at this point. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, if you know that story, uh, or just you don't have to know it, but one character's meeting another, Andy Dufresne and Morgan Freeman's character, Red. It's taking place in prison, and Andy Dufresne introduces himself. They're out in the yard. He says, I'm Andy Dufresne. Red says, the wife-killing banker, why'd you do it? He says, I didn't, since you asked. Red says, you're going right, to uh, fit right in here. Everybody in here is innocent. Didn't you know that? Hey, Wood, what are you in for? I didn't do it, he responds. That's a memorable exchange in that, in that movie, if you know it. But there's also some rootedness in the reality. There was some research that was done a few years ago at the University of Southampton in England that showed prisoners rate themselves as equally law-abiding as non-prisoners. Not only that, they believe they possess more pro-social characteristics, that is kindness, morality, self-control, and generosity, than non-prisoners. So what are they doing? They're putting themselves in a strong, as strong a light as they possibly can despite the circumstances. Uh, the research professor says it's very important for people to consider themselves good, valued, and esteemed no matter what objective cir- circumstances might be. Now let me say, they have dignity and worth. They're made in the image of God. But we have to be real about who we are And we're all like that to a degree. We're all innocent. And then what? We open our mouths. Whereas the Lord did not open his mouth as we might expect, as we hear it in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Let us do the same. And there be changed by his mercy and by his grace begin to speak differently. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. We pray that we would, as we learn to lament both the world that we see outside of us and the world that we see inside, that you'd help us to follow you, the one who judges justly. And Father, you are just in your judgment in giving Christ 
on our behalf, the one with the words of eternal life. May we hear what he says to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.